Morning, friends. Great to see you today. Before I begin, I want to, on behalf of Pastor Brian, express our gratitude for your generous and thoughtful pastor's appreciation gift last Sunday. Um, I join with Brian saying how much we appreciate you and uh, love being your shepherds and serving among you. So thank you very much for your kindness uh, towards us last week. Let me ask you now to open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 11. Yes, we have reached a new chapter. And uh, let me read our passage uh, for us as we begin. Verse 11 is kind of a dangler. I'll probably cover it more next week than this Sunday, but uh, let me read it nonetheless. So Mark 11, 1 through 11, hear the word of God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before, those who followed, and those who went before, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. This is God's authoritative and inerrant word, and let's pray and ask for his help as we look into this passage today. Father, we do uh, come to you and we plead our great need. Uh, Lord, our souls are so thirsty and hungry today, and we need to be fed from your word, and I pray that your word would become a feast for us this morning. Uh, Father, as we read the account of your son's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, I pray that you would quicken us and nourish us with the truth of your word. Lord, I pray in particular that you would strengthen my throat today and, uh, and uh, let it endure through the morning. I pray that you would quicken all of our minds and hearts with your good spirit that we might comprehend and apply your truth to our lives. Jesus Please do this work through your good spirit who dwells in us. We commit ourselves to you now and ask Jesus in your name. Amen. Well, you can see in your copy of God's word uh, that the passage 
before us is referred to as the triumphal entry. If you have an ESV, no doubt many of you have that heading above verse 1. Uh, Jesus, who has been on the way to Jerusalem since chapter 8, has finally reached the outskirts of the city today. Uh, and in a departure from his usual practice, uh, he approaches and enters the city like a triumphant king. Now, in the ancient world, it would be hard to imagine an entrance more grand and glorious than a Roman triumphal entry. A Roman triumphal entry was a spectacle reserved for those generals and leaders whose campaigns had claimed 5,000 enemy casualties. And those processions formed outside the city where the Roman general and his troops would lay down their weapons and then they would march through a, a triumphal arch as they entered the city, uh, being led by heralding trumpeters. And then following would be floats, yes, floats, representing the captured cities uh, that they had conquered. And then following the floats, wagons rolled by, wheels groaning under the weight of the plunder they contained. These would be followed by 70 white oxen who would later be sacrificed at the end of the triumphal uh, entry. And after the animals came the chained enemy commanders and lords. Preceding the Roman commander in this auspicious uh, parade came musicians playing joyfully Incense bearers holding their braziers aloft. And then dressed in a purple toga and a crown of gold and standing ramrod sta uh, straight, the general, uh, the, the conquering general, would pass in his chariot, uh, pulled by sleek Arabian horses. Behind him, other chariots followed with his aides and, and other military leaders. And then in faultless formation behind them were his legions of troops. Arriving at the capital, the general would step down and, and followed by his family would ascend the steps to the Temple of Jupiter or Juno and Minerva where he would um, lay his treasures, sacrifice an ox, and would often order that the captive commander be slain as a thank offering to his gods. Well, there is no doubt that Jesus' triumphal entry stands in stark contrast to this Roman spectacle. Uh, there's no purple toga. There's no columns of troops, no heralding trumpets, just Jesus accompanied by the twelve and other supporters from Galilee celebrating the arrival of their king. What was his triumphal entry like? What were the key elements of Jesus' triumphal entry? And in our verses before us, we'll see that there were two key elements, uh, two key elements of his triumphal entry. Uh, the first key element of the king's arrival that we 
find before us is his preparation. Uh, every part of Jesus' arrival was prepared with painstaking precision. And there are two items in particular uh, related to his preparation. And one was the time of his arrival. Uh, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem just in time for Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Look at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives... Mark opens this chapter describing the end of a journey that began roughly nine months before this. And on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus had been zigzagging through Galilee, then beyond Galilee, finally arriving at Bethany and Bethphage outside of Jerusalem, really on, on the hilltop across from the city, just one week before Passover. Pastor Ken Hughes suggests that Jesus had visited at least 35 locations along the way, timing his journey so that he would end up in Jerusalem for Passover. Now, this might not strike you as, as all that significant, but I just want to compare that Christy and I can hardly ever do this. When we go, when we're invited to somebody's house for dinner, Almost invariably, we arrive too early. Uh, it's very frustrating. And so I, when thinking about when we need to leave, I suggest, well, why don't we leave then? Uh, this will account for any traffic we encounter on the way. But, you know, Murphy's Law, there's no traffic on the way. <laughs> and we get there really unfashionably early. And so you can't stop at the house that early for Pete's sakes. They're not, they might not even be ready for us yet. And so we wind up driving around the neighborhood for 15 minutes or so and, or finding a side street to just sit and twiddle our thumbs and watch the clock. I don't know. We, we can hardly ever pull it off. It's happened so many times. But commenting on this arrival, uh, listen again. Ken Hughes says, in all of this, we observed Jesus' painstaking premeditation. He had carefully ordered everything. The day and hour were selected from eternity past with countdown perfection. I mean, after all, he is here to be offered as the Passover lamb. And the timing is absolutely impeccable. So that's the first item we find in his preparation, the time of his arrival. Now, there's a second item that I want to point out as well, and that is the mode of his arrival. Uh, Jesus not only planned when he would arrive in Jerusalem, he also planned how he would arrive in Jerusalem. And let me mention four things about his mode of arrival. I'll put these on another slide for you. Um, first, we learned that his mode of arrival was a donkey's colt. Toward the end of verse 1, Mark writes, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied. Colt doesn't tell us what kind of animal it is. Matthew's account fills that in. For us, Matthew writes in his account of this entry, 
Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. So first, we learn about his mode of transportation, that it's a donkey's colt. But then secondly, we also see that it's an unused colt. Uh, from verse 2, uh, we see this as well. Uh, it says, you will find a colt on which no one has ever sat. This was a, uh, especially important uh, in the era of the Old Testament. There was special value in an unused animal, not just because it had low mileage and it was the original owner. These, uh, these it was seen, were especially suited for religious purposes. If you remember um, the calf used uh, uh, to return the Ark of the Covenant, uh, that David used. Often these were unused animals set aside for a sacred task and because of that they could not be used for ordinary things. I'm not saying that the owners of this animal set it aside. What I am saying is that Jesus in his planning orchestrated it that this animal was never used. He saw to it that this young donkey had not been used for any other purposes. The owners would not typically have done this. Uh, animals were not kept as pets. They were kept for practical purposes, uh, for work, transportation, farming. But here at this home, there, there just so happens to be a young donkey on which no one has ever sat. So this is importantly, it's, it's a cult that has never been ridden. Third, I want you to see that this is a royal cult or a king's cult. Jesus commandeers this animal, exercising his right as Yahweh's king. And we see this as uh, toward the end of verse 2. Uh, Untie it and bring it. Verse 3, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately, or probably better, they will send it back here with you immediately. You know, Mark uses the word Lord here, and you'll see it's in all capital, and all uh, or small caps, rather. Or it's not, but in, in, in the New Testament, the word Lord can mean master, owner. But Mark probably has a little a bit more than that going on in this sense, He's probably using the word Lord to indicate God's sacred name, Yahweh. And so really what Jesus is, is telling his men, tell them, tell the owners of the cult that Yahweh needs it. The sovereign one needs it. Uh, the king of the Jews needs and requires your donkey. And his disciples would find that they released it immediately to send. Jesus is ex exercising his right as king to commandeer any animal that he needed. And they find it exactly as he described in verse 4. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. 
And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. So third, this is a king's cult. Um, and then fourth, uh, we see that this is a prophetic cult or a prophesied cult. It's not that the cult itself was prophetic, but uh, it had been prophesied about uh, through Zechariah the prophet. Uh, he described the king's mode of arrival some 500 years before this, a passage that we read in our scripture reading this morning, uh, Zechariah 9.9. 9. Uh, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This mode of transportation uh, was announced by Zechariah some 500 years before this event took place. So not only um, is the time of his rivals, arrival significant, uh, the second item we see in the preparation of the king is the mode of his arrival. And we've seen these four things. It, it was a donkey's colt, unused. Uh, it was as if a king was using it. He commandeered it for his use. And it was prophetic, a key prophetic element, uh, element in the Old Testament scriptures. So the time and the mode of his arrival Oh, we, we see these two things in his preparation. There's a second key element, though, beyond his preparation. And the second key element we find in our passage is his presentation. Uh, the way he presents himself publicly as Israel's Messiah. And this public presentation is quite different than what we've seen in the first ten chapters of Mark. And I want to draw out four characteristics of his presentation and point them out to you. First, it was messianic. And by that I mean Jesus presents himself now as the Messiah. Look at verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Uh, this is immediately following from our last point, that the cult was prophesied. Again, uh, Zechariah, which I have again, but you don't need to see it. But humble mounted on a, on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Jesus deliberately fulfills this well-known prophecy from Zechariah to announce. This is, this is completely different from what's uh, previous ground in the book of Mark. He's deliberately doing this to announce here that he was Israel's Messiah and that Israel's Messiah had arrived. Now listen to Dr. Sproul comment. He says Zechariah's prophecy was well known among the people who were waiting for their coming king. Deeply rooted in the Jewish consciousness of the Old Testament was the hope of the king 
who had entered Jerusalem as their coming Messiah while riding on a donkey. In other words, that truth was commonplace, well known. It probably was a saying they had woven into their culture that, of course, the king uh, would arrive on a donkey. Excuse me. And so by entering the city on the foal or colt of a donkey, Jesus is explicitly revealing himself to the, to the nation as their Messiah, God's anointed king. This is the first characteristic of his presentation. It is messianic. In other words, he is revealing himself now, finally, to be the Messiah. Second, and of course, obviously, perhaps, uh, it was a very public presentation. Jesus openly revealed his identity to the crowd. Follow along now in verse 8. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. The many spreading their cloaks and the others spreading leafy branches is probably a reference to the fellow Galileans that had accompanied him and his disciples to Jerusalem for the Passover. Remember that Jesus and the twelve were not alone, but there was a crowd with them that had also come down from Galilee uh, on that circuitous route through the Jordan Valley to Jericho, which they were last week, saw blind Bartimaeus receive his sight. And this is probably the same group. They're Galilean supporters. Now, John says here that the people came waving palm branches. That probably is not quite yet. Uh, John also tells us that those came out from the city of Jerusalem. But the many and others we're talking about is probably Galilean supporters of Jesus. Those who made the trip with them. But regardless, this would have been a very public demonstration. Nothing less than a royal procession as they move and approach toward the city. And think of what a departure this is from his previous efforts. Up to this point, Jesus has maintained a well-kept secret of his identity that he was the Messiah. He told people, don't tell anyone. Again, we saw that through the first 10 chapters of Mark's gospel. But now, uh, completely turning, uh, doing a complete 180, Jesus makes sure now that he's noticed. It's so striking. One scholar said this, the staged arrival in Jerusalem deviates from Jesus' previous attempts to avoid calling attention to himself. He hushed those who tried to champion his name without fully understanding what he was sent to do. What occurs now is a complete reversal. Jesus encourages public rejoicing by his provocative entrance. His actions encourage the crowd to blaze in his name jubilantly from street corners and rooftops. So his presentation is very public, very, very outward. 
uh, and uh, no uh, noisy as well. Uh, this is what we see next. Uh, the result of this public messianic presentation results in great joy for the crowd. It's, it's a joyful presentation. Notice verse 9 in your Bible. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Um, perhaps those who went before, those would be people nearer to the city. And perhaps now we can include the people John mentions. Uh, in John 12, 12, the people who had heard the, the noise and who had come out from the city waving palm branches. Perhaps those uh, uh, are the group that went before and those who followed are the Galilean supporters. But together they join their voices shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from Psalm 118. And then some scholars even suggest that this was antiphonal singing going on here. Uh, those in front shouting, Hosanna! And those behind shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This was an occasion of, of great joy seeing uh, Jesus uh, fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy, riding on the foal of a donkey, the colt of a donkey, identifying himself publicly as Israel's Messiah, it's an occasion for them to rejoice, and it is that. <clears throat> Finally, it's uh, a messianic, public, joyful presentation we must note also fourthly that it is completely misunderstood this presentation is misunderstood by the crowd two indicators reveal this to us there are two indications that the crowd does not quite get what's going on and I would include his 12 disciples in this group still. The first indicator is the palm branches that Luke, uh, excuse me, John describes. John 12, uh, 12 through 15 is the reference if you want to look at John's account of this. That those from the city came out waving palm branches. So what's the significance of palm branches? Uh, well, it's it's a historical reference 150 years before this event took place. There was a man named Judas Maccabeus who had driven the Syrian army out of Israel and had restored the temple. Judas Maccabeus was greeted uh, as a national hero with waving palm branches. And because of this, the palm branch became a national symbol of victory. And they would wind up eventually um, stamping it on their coins, similar to the way we have a bald eagle 
and an American flag on our coins. It's a very important national symbol uh, of Israel, the, the palm branches. And these indicate that there is some misunderstanding here. It indicates the crowd was expecting another Judas Maccabeus. In other words, they're looking for yet another military hero, this time who will take care of Rome and deliver Israel from Roman occupation and restore Israel's national sovereignty. So the palm branches are, are a main clue that they don't quite get it. The second indicator that they are misunderstanding the essence of what's taking place is the song they're singing. Hosanna, uh, meaning save us, we pray, or save now. Save now, uh, they shout. And then the third phrase of their uh, song, uh, note, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And what we understand from this is that they believe that Christ is now going to institute the kingdom of their ancestor David. And it's been further suggested, and, and I think it's probably true, that the main cheerleaders in this throng were likely the twelve. I mean, we know this has been their train of thought for a long time. And uh, I, I don't doubt at all that Peter might have been the loudest cheerleader of the bunch standing out there. Blessed is, it, it's clear they still didn't clearly understand what Jesus uh, was doing as, as their Messiah. Save now, we pray. That's a really good indication that they're not quite getting it yet. So fourthly, his presentation is misunderstood. Yes, he is their Messiah King, but he has not come to do what they expect to him to do. And I want to put it to you this morning that this is still true that to a great many, Jesus' coming, his first coming, has been misunderstood. And they under, misunderstand why Jesus uh, has come to save us. And the misunderstanding, like, like the crowd here, is that many misunderstand Jesus and believe that he came for our own happiness. Jesus has come to fulfill me and make my life complete. Jesus has come to satisfy my dreams and my hopes and wishes. And friends, this is not the case. It's a shock to many to learn that first and foremost... Jesus came primarily for his Father's glory. 
That's what kept him awake at night. That's what drove him. That's what uh, helped him persevere and endure the glory of his father. Now, as a matter of fact, uh, several hundred years ago, a pastor in the Northeast made a study of this and concluded that the whole story of redemption is about the glory of the Father. And he published this account. And others have read it and agreed with him that the whole account of Scripture, the whole point of Scripture, is about the glory of God. His supremacy, his majesty, his, forgive me, his awesomeness. Uh, his spectacularness. I tell you without uh, waffling or whatever, that is the main thing God is about and has always been about. And if you're a little miffed at that, that it was not all about you and it's never really been all about you, that's a really great thing. God has always been about his own glory. That sounds awfully self-centered. Now, if it was you and me saying something like that, it would be self-centered. It would be, we'd call it pride. And the main reason we would call it pride and sinful and self-centered is because, in fact, it is not true when we say it. When God says it, that uh, when God encourages us to see himself as he really is, his glory, his might, his awesomeness. That is true because he is the most awesome thing and the most spectacular thing in the universe as well as the most satisfying thing in the universe. He promotes himself above you so that you will look up and find satisfaction it's crazy. Your satisfaction is not based in what you want or what you think you need. Your satisfaction is based entirely in another person. The thing that will fill you and thrill you and put joy in your bones is nothing down here. It's not you getting that next thing from Amazon. It is him and his son, Jesus Christ. 